If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue to walk through Romans. And Paul is going to unpack how the overabounding grace of Jesus Christ that when sin reaches the high water mark in our life, the grace of Jesus floods our world, is not a truth that is to be abused so that we can live however we want. And he's still unpacking that. And he's going to pick up in verse, we are going to pick up in verse 5 through 11 of chapter 6. For if we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Basically, can't have one without the other. Knowing this, that our old self, our old sin nature, who we were in Adam, was crucified with Christ in order that the life that we live now, our body of sin, might slowly die away. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. How then, if we have died with Christ, we believe, I'm sorry, now if we have died to Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead to never die again. Death no longer was master over him. For the death that he died, he died once and for all. But the life that he was resurrected to and lives, he now lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And with that being said, let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the opportunity that we should never take for granted. For without your word, there is no renewing of our mind. Without the renewing of our mind, Lord, there is no transformation of our hearts. Father, may we not just learn about your word, but Father, let us do the hard work of applying it. Too often we sit idle in your kingdom, just waiting to become more like you. Father, help us to apply that truth. Lord, we live in a community here in Grand Rapids that lives their lives under the shadow of the gospel, with a church on every corner given us the illusion that we are participants in it. Father, may this passage awaken us to the biblical gospel and aware of the falsehood of the American gospel. Father, glorify Yourself this morning. Glorify Your Word. Use what little gifts You've given me to teach Your truth. Father, I pray that I would just teach your word and not worry about either side of the argument. Father, that I may know that I've pleased you and you alone. And so, Father, I pray this. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And we pray this in your Son's precious name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. If you're in the hallelujah or amen corner, say amen or hallelujah. All right, it's good to see you guys over there. I want to start out with this. Steve said something in the beginning during announcements. Um, this is a very difficult passage. In fact, chapter 6, 7, and 8 is, is going to be some tough hoeing, if you will. 
As I studied it this week, commentators and theologians and professors and respected pastors, both dead and alive, disagreed on their interpretation of the finer details of this meaning, which left me like deer in a headlight. Because if you read all these godly men and women and they're they're unpacking the scripture and they disagree, can you imagine the trembling that, that Brett has in their life? Are you following me? Say amen. I am not the brightest bulb in the shed. Say nothing. All right. Nothing. There it is. Who said that? I got to know. Who said that? Thank you, Kathy. And Dave, if you could keep your wife. Yes. All right. I'm just joking. But even though they disagreed on the finer details of interpretation, there was great unity among them on the major theme of the passage and its intent. So as a under-shepherd teaching the flock of Christ, of which I am one, I have to make a decision. I want you to imagine, if you will, a, I want you to picture a field. And at the end of that field is a brook or a fresh pond of water that you can drink from. And there are two paths that lead to that water. One will wind through the woods and over rocks and roots and and all of that. And the other side, it's just an open field that leads directly to the water. Now, as, as a shepherd, I have an opportunity to lead you to water using two different paths. I could lead you through the challenging, winding trail of details, through the force of original language, imagery, culture, hermeneutics, exegesis, navigating the winding trail, and arrive on the other side of the still waters of application. But if there were a hundred, let's see, 400 sheep, and we decided to take this side over here, and we finally get out on the other side, how many sheep would make it to the water? Talk to me. At least less than what needed. There are going to be those who are disagreeing. Is this a maple tree or is this an oak tree? Why would they go? And we get distracted by the details of, of, of what's the word I'm looking for? Disagreement, if you will. So we could do that. However, in doing so, many of us would get lost in the woods, confused or distracted or disagreeing. And never make it to the waters of application. And by the way, including me as well. Or we could just turn our head and walk through the open field next to the woods. And have fewer obstacles and all of us would get to the waters of application. If I choose the woods, I get to look skilled. If I choose the open field, I get to look simple. But everyone, strong and delicate, would make it to the waters of application. So in loving discernment, I'm going to choose the simple open field this morning. Because while it may not come across as impressive, it will bring as many of us as possible to unavoidable main point. And by the way, I want to get to that main point as well. Because friends, here it is. You are more important than I am. You are more important than I am. It is more important that all of us get to the waters of Paul's point here than to impress one another with how well we navigate difficult trails. So with this in mind, let's just walk through the field. How many here have ever driven home from work and don't remember a single moment driving home from work? Anyone at all? Thank you. I'm not alone on that. Is that, is that early onset of something? 
all right? You, you drive home and you pull into the driveway and you're like, I don't remember any of that. You pull into the driveway. Or how about this? You drive somewhere so often that the muscle memory develops and you drive there so often that even when you're not on your way to that destination, you go there anyway. I I counted this week. On average, I drive back and forth to church about 20 times a week. And that if there's no special trips or special meetings. About 20 times a week. There are times when Amy and I will be going somewhere else, all right? Somewhere other than church, praise Jesus, all right? Somewhere other than church. And I will turn towards church just because of the, the muscle memory there. And Amy will say, where are you going? And I say, I'm the leader here. (laughs) I had to church all the time. I don't even think about it. That's what we're going to look at here. Muscle memory is a powerful thing. Muscle memory is a powerful thing. When you do something long enough, not only does it become second nature, but it takes effort to change the way you're thinking or the actions that you do. And by the way, that's really going to be pulled out of this passage. Our daily bread gives a great example of this, one that we'll, we will end with and use throughout our time in this passage. He sa- it says this, There once was a newly young married man who after coming home from his honeymoon went to work that day and on his way home he forgot that he had gotten married. And through his muscle memory he drove, rather than to his new bride, he drove home to his mother's house and had dinner with her. His new bride waited for him until late into the evening, worried where he could be. This is before cell phones, obviously. Worried where he would be, not knowing that her newly married husband absent-mindedly had driven back to her mother-in-law's house instead of driving back home to her. How many here knows this young man is a dead man walking? Amen? Now we're going to be unpacking that analogy all morning long. And in that analogy, the bride is going to represent our new life in Christ. The mother-in-law, appropriately so, (laughs) is going to represent death and sin, all right? That's just how it unpacks. Zip it. All right, now, I'm just, here's what's going to... Now, this story may be pretty rare with newly married people. It may be pretty rare. But unfortunately, it's very common among those who are married to Christ. It's very common to those of us who are in union and married with Christ. We drive home to the old nature. We drive home to sin. We drive home to sinfulness rather than our new groom in Jesus Christ. We forget our union with him. And oftentimes we drive back to our old union with Adam and sin. This is what Paul is unpacking here. There's a lot of difficult imagery here, so we must remember that Paul is still dealing with those who insist that the grace of Jesus allows them to just live their lives however they want. It's fire insurance. I got it stamped. I said the prayer. I I squinted and gritted my teeth when I said it. And, And it's okay if nothing changes in my life. In fact, I can do whatever I want, and the grace of Jesus just floods that. Paul is saying here that not only is that not true, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, not only is that not true, but Paul is going to say the opposite is true. It is impossible. It is impossible 
to continue living an unchanged life when you become an authentic child of God. In fact, to live like one did before Christ without any progression towards Him is to prove that one was never ever in Christ. We see that in the words right here that start out, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death. There is a temptation here to bring you into the thick woods of word study, but let me just stay in the open field here. A believer's marriage, a believer's union with Jesus Christ means that we are separated, i.e. the word death. That's what death means in this biblical context here. We are separated from the power of sin in our lives. We're not separated from the presence of sin. We all still sin from time to time, but it no longer has power over us. We're separated from that power. But it does more than that. A believer's union with Jesus means that we are separated, but it does more than that. Look at the next words here. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Salvation not only breaks the power of sin, but it brings a new way of living into our lives. A new way, not not a sustained old way, not a fire insurance, go do what you want, but everything fundamentally changes when you become unionized with and married to Jesus Christ, which I don't know about you, but brings up the question, what about someone who accepts Christ when they're five years old? How do they, how do they know they're in one with Christ if they get saved so young? We'll talk about that in a moment. What I need to see here is this. Christ did not die. Oh, hear this Grand Rapids. Hear this Brett Boomsma. When you look in the mirror on Monday morning and you get done preaching the Word of God and you're struggling to apply it to your own life. Hear this. Christ did not die simply to save you from your sins. He died to save you from your sinfulness starting today. Oh, the whole gospel of God's word. Christ did not die simply to keep you out of hell or to keep me out of hell but to be conformed daily into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, Paul just unpacks it right here and says this, Our old self is crucified, separated with Him. This truth couldn't be more clear. Paul says that those who... Paul says that who we were before Christ is now dead to us. We are separated from it. Upon salvation, our old way of living is ended. It is crucified. You now have a new life, a new heart, a new purpose, a new hope. To make such a point beyond argument, Paul says this, in order that your body of sin might be done away with. Now commentators disagree on every every nuance of this sentence, but they agree on the major point, and here it is. So let me be clear. Schreiner says this, This does not mean that Christians cannot, in fact, sin. We all sin. First John talks about repenting of our sins and being restored to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that Christians cannot, in fact, sin, but that sin is no longer the ruling principle of a true child of God. It isn't your master. It isn't where you always go by default. You fight it. You're at war with it. 
R.C. Sproul says, we still sin. However, that doesn't mean that we're unchanged. We are. The old man is dying daily. The old man, the old nature that is crucified, dies the death of inches each day that we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Which brings up an unavoidable question that I have had since I was a little kid, and maybe you have it too. If my old sin nature has been crucified when I place true salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, why do I feel that it's so much? alive. Am I alone on that? If I'm, if I'm not alone, say amen. Why, why, why if the old sinful self is dead, why am I drawn that way? Why isn't it dead to me then? Why do I still have a strong propensity for sin? Or here's something, certain sins in my life. As Galatians 5, 17 touches on, we, we're still at war between our old flesh and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're at war with our old nature. If my old self has been crucified upon salvation, why do I feel such a pull to sin? And the answer is found in a simple, already not yet tension of theology. And you find this throughout the Word of God. Your old sin nature has been crucified with Christ. You are no longer under its power. We just unpack that. And the new nature of Christ is a reality. We find that in Colossians chapter 3. And yet our old sin nature and its desires must still be actively resisted. Ephesians 4.22 Now if you're anything like me, you say that seems like a confusing cop-out of an answer. What in the world does that mean? We're dead to our sin and our old nature, yet we still have to resist it. How can they both? It seems like you're trying to eat your cake and and have it too. No, it is that already not yet tension. Let me unpack that here. Paul says that in God's eyes, positionally, our union with our old sin nature has been broken. That's the already part. You are legally and positionally declared dead to the power of sin because you died with Christ and you resurrected with Christ. Yet, at the same time, practically, we have to apply that truth in our daily battle against sin and temptation. That's the not yet part of it. So let me go back to the illustration in which we began with, where the new bride represents Christ in our relationship with, with holiness, and the mother-in-law represents what church? Sin and death. That was horrible. The, the, together in unison with some, with, some, with some, what's the word I'm looking for? Guster. The mother-in-law represents what? There we go. I'm teasing. I love my mother-in-law. Let's go back to that. With the already not yet theology, I want you to think of that young bride and groom there. That newly wed man is still is in a new legal union positionally with his wife. Is he not? What's the answer? Of course he is. The papers have been sent in. They've been notarized. He is, he is positionally married to his new bride. But... Having a legal standing before your, your wife doesn't mean, how many here would say, that does not mean marriage takes no effort, it's easy, and it just flows. Anyone at all? How many here say marriage has been the simplest thing I've ever done in my life? Go. Who? Of course not. It's not enough that you legally hold that position. You have to what? Talk to me. 
You got to work at it. You got to apply it. You got to remember it. This newlywed man has a legal new standing positionally with his wife, but he has to remember that and apply it daily, or he will inevitably find himself at his old house with his mother. Well, legally binding, this new relationship has to be remembered. It has to be applied. It has to be acted on in already not yet tension. The idea that we are just going to naturally flow towards holiness without any effort, without any application of God's word and become more like Christ is one of the things that is killing the American church today. We must apply it. We simply can't just claim it. We have to apply it. We have to live it. We have to go after it through the power of Jesus Christ. What good would it do for this young man to claim that he is married to his new bride, but never apply it as he rides home to his mother-in-law every night? Hence the words, knowing this, knowing this. Paul mentions knowledge three times, twice in this passage, three times if you go to Romans 6, chapter 3. We must apply what we know. We must apply our positional union with Jesus Christ. We must remember it. We must act on it. We just don't go, I'm a Christian, and then just drift into wherever your desires go. Knowing who you are in Christ is the foundation of how we are to live our lives. My friends, you are married. I am married. We have a groom. We're supposed to make ourselves pure and chaste at his arrival. My friends and church, we are married. We need to go home to Christ and not, not drive back to our old mother-in-law of sin and nature, sin and death. Truth must produce action. Child of God, you are married to Christ. You must actively stop driving to sin's doorstep. If you have no growing desire to act upon your new relationship with Jesus, no growing desire, here it is, you don't have one. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is not dormant. In fact, the power of the Holy Spirit to our sin nature is at war with your old nature already, not yet. Do you want more of Him in less and less of your old life? My friends, there is something... In, can I get an amen to this? I hope you can say amen to this. My friends, there is something fundamentally wrong with a young man who prefers his mother over his bride. Amen? There is something fundamentally wrong with that. Some of you wives are like elbowing your husbands right now. Listen to him. Write that down. Then then if that is true, let it be equally said as clear. There is something fundamentally wrong with a professing Christian who prefers their old sinful life rather than Jesus Christ. Oh, is it even wonder why Paul said this? He said this. For this very reason. Look at that. Effort. Who would have thought? I thought we were just all going to gravitationally pull to holiness. With every effort, add to your faith. And look how it builds on itself. Just be good. Just be good to people. And, and when you goodness, make sure you add the knowledge. And when you got knowledge, apply it to self-control. And when you have self-control, persevere through trials and perseverance into godliness and godliness into mutual affection and mutual affection. Here's one. Love. For if you possess these qualities in what? What's the green say? Increasing. Oh, that's going to unpack. 
My brothers and sisters, make every effort to make sure your salvation is true. How? Through these increasing evidences. For if you do these things, you will receive the assurance that what you say you have, you actually have. If you are the same person spiritually and morally as you were five years ago, you're dead in your sins. You're dead in your sins and you're telling yourselves a lie. That new position in Christ demands that you go towards Jesus Christ, that you apply it to your life. This is hugely applied to many of us who were saved at the age of five in the church. Or maybe younger. Or maybe you grew up in the church. Here's a question. How do you measure life in Christ when you have never truly known any life apart from Him? If you're anything like me, I grew up with the five solos. I, I, I grew up with faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. I grew up going to Sunday school and learning the Bible and, and then giving my life to Christ. Outwardly, very little changed in my life. So how do you know if you truly know Jesus Christ? If it's all you've ever known, here it is. And it's up there in that verse. Your desire for Him, your love for Him will be growing. It will be growing. It won't be inactive. Your desire for sin will weaken and weaken and your desire for Christ will strengthen. Here's the question. Is that you? Is that me? It is here where Paul just pushes it home. Oh, that the church today and its pastors would hear these words because for too long we have called apathy and indifference and carnal Christianity acceptable proofs to the gospel. If you are apathetic to the things of Christ, how in the world can you possibly claim him? So let us hear this. I want you to look at these words. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all time, but the life he gives, he lives to God. There it is. When Jesus took on sin, the sin of you and I, the sin of mankind, of Adam, the sin nature of all the world, when, when Jesus took on that sin, now he had no sin of his own, right? He, was, he lived life and was tempted in all points, but in all points without sin. But, but he died because of sin, because whose sin did he take on? Talk, it's really easy. Whose sin? Our sin. And when he took on that sin, the penalty of sin is what? Death. What does death mean? It starts with S-E-P. It means what? Separation. Jesus, when he took on our sin, was separated from God the Father. My God, my God, why have you what? Broken relationship in the Trinity. Who could fathom? But he was separated because of it. There was a break in the relationship with God the Father. But when he was raised, that relationship was restored and Christ lived again for God the way he did before the separation. Now with that in hand, with that in hand, he once had a, he, he had a perfect relationship with God the Father. It was separated because of sin. And when it was restored, he lived for Christ. Mankind once had a morally innocent relationship in the garden with, with God the Father. And sin entered the world. And when he was restored with Christ Jesus, we too, just like Christ, are to live our lives for him. In fact, we see it here in the words. Look at this. You ready for this? 
So you too, there it is, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, separated from sin, and alive to God and to Christ Jesus. We too suffered a break in relationship with God because of sin, but when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are restored to live again for the glory of God, here it is. This is not a suggestion to a believer. This is not a recommendation. It's not a preferred outcome of, yeah, I, 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 I prayed the prayer, but I'm not sure I've decided whether or not I'm going to give my life to Christ. Those cannot be separated. This isn't like a tiered system of what the Holy Spirit does. Like the Holy Spirit comes to you like a traveling salesman and says, you know what, I'd like to give you salvation. Now plan number one, all right, is just that you invite me into my life, but, but I have absolutely no effect on it. Or you could do the upcharge tier plan where that's where the holy rollers do, and, and I'll come into your life and I will transform you into a new creation. It's not a tiered system. This is not a suggestion. This is not a preferred outcome of true salvation. I need you to hear this. To live for God, to be conformed into the image of Christ from the day of salvation, progressively, not perfectly. How many here can agree we're going to fail? Trip, fall, repent, get up, do it again, and hopefully grow in Him, will grow in Him. How many here can attest that our Christian lives are not perfect? Amen? But we ought to be progressing. I need you to hear this. It's not a suggestion. It's not a preferred outcome. Here it is. It is the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation. It is significant that this verse here, 11, Grab this. It's the first command in the entire book of Romans. This is the first command. Simply put, Paul says, you see what Christ did? You live that way. Start living that way now. Imperfectly, of course, but keep heading that way. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't allow its pig to lay in the mud. It says, get out. Get out. You are an heir to the kingdom of God. You are union with Jesus Christ. You're not, you're not to drive home to your mother-in-law. You are to drive fast to your new groom. Kent Hughes brings up an amazing insight here. He says this whole passage is prevention theology. Live this way so you can avoid the devastations of sin. So much of our time is spent in corrective theology, is it not? What to do after we've sinned? Which, by the way, is a good thing. First John 1 John 1.9 is a wonderful thing. But maybe, rather than just running headlong into walls and then looking for correction, we could, we could preventively avoid these things. In fact, the word consider is in the future tense. Keep on considering. Keep on thinking. Yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. My friends, grab this. As you think, so you will act. How you think, so you will act. The more you think, the more you will act. Never stop thinking about these twin truths in your life. 
Jesus Christ died to rescue from the penalty of sin, the penalty of hell, the penalty of eternal damnation. But he also died to rescue you from the power of sin today, right now, increasingly. We have not been saved simply from our sins, but we have been saved from our sinfulness. Oh, that old hymn writer had it right when he said in that old song, Rock of Ages, listen to these words, be of sin's double cure, saved from the wrath to come and to make me pure today. Friends, do you see the evidence of a double cure? Look at how clear Paul makes it here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe then we shall live with him. And there it is in the pink. Paul uses the future tense here, but there's a, there's a problem here. He's in a present tense context. Theologians argue whether Paul's talking about when we live with Christ someday in heaven, future tense, or that we should live for Christ in our present lives for ourselves right now. I see arguments for both. Frankly, I see no need to choose. Frankly, this is one of those times where I see it's a false dilemma, a false choice. (laughs) Oh, that could preach right there. That's a different subject. Both can actually be true at the same time, especially within the context of Paul's letter to the church right now. We are to pursue holy living today as we prepare to live in eternal holiness in heaven in the future. A story is told of a young girl, and I'm almost done. A story is told of a young girl by the name of Victoria that would one day be the future queen of England. She was shielded from this fact so that the knowledge of it would not spoil her. To this day, I'm waiting for my father to tell me, listen, we didn't want to spoil you, but you're a king. Hasn't come yet. Starting to doubt it. They, they shielded her from the knowledge that she would one day be queen. Queen, how's that? That's politically correct, isn't it? King, queen, queen, all right? That she'll be queen of England someday. And when the time came, her teacher, her tutor, finally told her that she would one day rule as the queen of England. Victoria's response said, then I will be good. I will be good. And from that moment on, she was controlled by the knowledge of her future position. I'm one day going to be queen. I better start acting like it now. You want to know what this passage is saying? Now that we know this, that we are in union with Christ, let us respond by saying, then I will be holy. I will be holy now. I'll pursue holiness now. I will apply this knowledge. I will take this first command. And me too, just like Jesus Christ, live for God. Our lives should be controlled by the knowledge of our future eternal position. I'm one day going to live in holiness with Jesus Christ. So let me now pursue that holiness today. Grace is not a license to live loosely. But to pursue Christ. And here we are. We've made it to the waters of application, I hopefully by just taking the simple path. I hope all of us have made it all the way there. While a shepherd can lead to water, he cannot make anyone drink, and the same is true for me. I would simply ask all of us a question. Are you increasingly desiring and living for Jesus Christ? Are you driving more to your bride and less to your mom? 
Are you driving more and more to Christ and less to your old life? Friend, we cannot equally hang on to our sin in one hand while taking hold of Christ in the other. The gospel makes the distinct break in our old life. Do not play around with the Americanized, Grand Rapinized, half-truth gospel of the Jesus Christ because the gospel comes with a double cure. Not a single cure. A double cure. Do not play around with the half version of the gospel because here it is. It does not save. My friends, I love you. Drink of the true gospel. Drink it all. Stick your head into the depths of the gospel and gulp it down. Jesus said, the water that I give you will become in you a fountain of water. Look at that. In increasing measure, growing more and more, springing up to the future cure, eternal life. Not an ever-stagnant, shrinking puddle of verbiage. The living water of Jesus gives that He gives to believers is one of life-giving power, of perpetually flowing fountain within us that is active. It is dynamic. It is vigorous. It is growing. It is governing our lives. It is transforming us into the image of Christ. It longs to drive home to our groom and not back to our old home. Here it is. Do you have that gospel? That gospel. The only gospel. Today is the day that we turn in our sippy cup of the American gospel that changes nothing for the overflowing fountain that changes everything. It is time for biblical gospel. Is your life dormant? You still kicking around? kingdom of heaven the same way you were five years ago? Is your relationship with Christ stagnant at best? Do you want to know the power of Christ? To be a new creation in Jesus Christ. I want to stop driving to my old home and put the pedal to the metal to Jesus Christ. We live in a city with a church on every corner. We live our lives under the shadow of the gospel, giving us the illusion that we possess it. This passage takes the shadow away and says this is how you know the gospel. Do you have it? Do you have it? Don't leave here today without receiving it. Gracious Father, if there's anyone in this room this morning who has purchased the American fire insurance, I ask, Lord, that you would rip it from their hands and bring to them abundant life transforming life new creation of life in Christ and Father work on my heart too 
I pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. We pray. Amen. I love you all. You are dismissed.